Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trusts Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organisation, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. This week, as I noted in the podcast last weekend, I have been out of the country for a few days visiting the Netherlands and taking the opportunity to visit the splendid Vermeer exhibition at the Rijksmuseum. As a result, I am not been able to record the uh, summary of the news and uh, market movements this week, which I have handed over to my colleague Stuart Watson, who is the author of our in-depth profiles of investment trusts that you can find on the Moneymakers website as a subscriber to the Moneymakers circle. After that, there will be a discussion with uh, Bruce Stout, the uh, manager of the Murray International Trust, ticker MYI, which sits in the global equity income sector and indeed is the largest trust in that sector. Bruce has been the manager for several years and gives his distinctive take on events that are happening around the world and in the markets and also on the macroeconomic framework and how he is dealing with that. So more with him in a moment. The profile this week is of GCP Infrastructure, which is an investment trust that uh, looks to obtain a combination of income and capital returns from a portfolio of infrastructure company debt. An interesting vehicle, well worth a look. And at the end of the podcast, I will be saying a few more words uh, recorded before the weekend, I should say, about the interesting note from Numis, which is summarising some of the recent manager changes in the investment trust sector, of which there have been a fair few. So, over to Stuart for the week's news and market movements. Markets are up slightly this week with the Investment Trust Index up 0.7% from Monday to Thursday, while the sector average discount was unchanged at 14.4%. Government bond yields continued their recent rise in both the US and the UK. It was a very busy period for trust results. We had over 20 companies reporting. These were mostly either interim or full-year figures to the 31st of December. RIT Capital Partners, ticker RCP, said its 2022 NEV return was minus 13.3%. That was broadly in line with the minus 12.9% from its blended global markets benchmark. RIT share price has been under a lot of pressure recently, and that's following a broker note that highlighted its increased exposure to private equity funds, and this has seen its discount widen out to 20%. RIT defended itself in this annual report and it pointed out that private investments had long been a key part of its strategy and that its larger position size in this area was mostly due to strong performance in the last few years. The trust plans to continue buying back its shares, although it only bought back £11 million worth of shares last year, quite small compared to its £3 billion market cap. However, the last three days have seen it announced £6 million worth of buybacks, so it seems to be stepping up its activities in this area. JP Morgan Global Growth and Income, ticker JGGI, produced a positive 8.6% NEV return for the six months ended December 2022. That was ahead of the 3.3% return from its benchmark and continued its recent good run of performance. 
This period also saw the completion of its merger with Scottish Investment Trust and JP Morgan Elect. And these have seen the trust more than double in size to a market cap of £1.5 billion. We had Simon Edelston from Midwind International, ticker MWY, on last week's podcast. And we also heard recently that both he and Alex Illingworth are stepping down from the trust by the end of this year. Midwind's latest six-month figures showed a 2.6% positive return versus 3.3% for world markets. However, since the Artemis team took control of the portfolio back in 2014, its total return has been 184%, well ahead of the 141% produced by the MSCI All Country World Index. Murray International, ticker MYI, had an excellent 2022 with a positive return of 8.8% versus a 7.3% loss for its global benchmark. Trust is proposing a 5 for 1 share split at its forthcoming AGM with its share price now nearly £14. And despite its recent name change for Aberdeen, its investment advisor, the trust has no plans to change its own name. You can hear from Bruce Stout later in this podcast. And that's an interview recorded before these results were released. Smithson, ticker SSON, reported its first annual loss with its 2022 NAV falling by 28% compared to a 9% fall in its benchmark. Now that's largely erased the lead the trust had built up since its IPO in late 2018. However, as we heard from lead manager Simon Barnard in this podcast a couple of weeks ago, there are no changes planned to its overall strategy. BlackRock World Mining, ticker BRWM, which celebrates its 30th anniversary at the end of this year, posted a 17.7% NAV return in 2022. That was ahead of the 11.5% gain in its reference index. Now, I think that's the fourth successive year of NAV increases of at least 17% that this trust has managed, which is a record that many others would like to match, I'm sure. Of course, with its focus on commodities, it's also suffered from some long periods of low returns in the past too, particularly in the 1990s and another stretch in the 2010s. We had results from two of the largest UK equity income trusts, Lord Adventure, ticker LWDB, that just managed to outperform the UK market in 2022, with a return of 0.6% versus 0.3% for the all share. Its performance was helped once again by IPS, its wholly owned professional services operation. Murray Income, ticker MUT, slightly underperformed in the six months ended December 2022, with an NAV return of 4% versus 5.1% for the FTSE All Share. There were interim figures from Aberdeen K Smaller Companies Growth, ticker AUSC. Now, this was the last period under the management of Harry Nimmo, who retired in December after 19 years managing the trust. Its NAV fell 2.2% over the last six months, while its reference index fell just 0.6%. Tritax Big Box, ticker BBOX, confirmed that its 2022 NAV return was a negative 16%, and that was after a rise in rental yields led to a large fall in the valuation of its portfolio of warehouses. It increased its dividend by 4.5% to 7.0p for the year, and they also announced a sale of three non-core assets for $125 million, which was their latest book value. And Tritax added that it plans to moderate its development programme for 2023. Princess Private Equity, ticker PEY, said its 2022 NAV fell by 2%. It's also discontinuing its policy of currency hedging. Uh, it's from next month, and this was after the cash flow problems that it caused last year. 
which ended up in it skipping its second half dividend and stopping new investment. It's resuming its dividend with a payment of 0.36 euros per share in June, and that's based on its policy of paying out 5% of its opening NAV for each year. European smaller companies, ticker ESCT, that was up 9.3% for the last six months of 2022 versus a 6% gain for its benchmark. This is the trust formerly known as TR European Growth, and I'll be covering it in a fund profile for the Moneymakers Circle in the next couple of weeks. Bluefield Solar Income, ticker BSIF, that produced a 4.4% total return for the second half of 2022. It's uh, one of a number of trusts that might benefit from the National Grid announcement that it's looking at ways to speed up connection times for new renewable projects. Triple Point Social Housing, ticker SOHO, that delivered a NAV total return of 5.7%, although its discount widened from 10% at the start of the year to over 50% today. The trust is looking at doing some buybacks or even selling some of its properties to help narrow the discount. Riverstone Energy, ticker RSE, now that was up a very impressive 30% in sterling terms, just 17% though in US dollars. It was a good year for the energy sector, of course, and the trust has also benefited from a shift towards decarbonisation assets in the last couple of years. There are also results, I won't go into details though, we had results from Greencoat Renewables, ticker GRP, Mobius, ticker MMIT, CQS, New City High Yield, ticker NCYF, Pacific Horizon, ticker PHI, Apex Global Alpha, ticker APAX, and we had the first set of annual figures from Pantheon Infrastructure, ticker PINT. Finally, a couple of other news items. Aquila Energy Efficiency, ticker AEET, failed to pass a continuation vote this week. It had 56% of shareholders voting against. The continuation vote was originally due to take place in 2025, but being brought forward due to the various issues the trust has faced. The board has six months to recommend a course of action to its shareholders, although under its articles, it does need to hold another continuation vote at its AGM and no later than the 30th of June. Home rate ticker HOME has now been removed from the FTSE All Share Index, and that's because its shares have been suspended for 20 business days without any indication of when they will resume trading. There was also a report in CityWire that RM Capital Markets, which is the manager of RM Infrastructure Income, had approached the board of Home rate about running the trust. RM said it had secured the support of 30% of HomeReads shareholders. So this week I was uh, very fortunate to catch up with Bruce Stout, who is the manager of the uh, Murray International Investment Trust, has been the manager since 2004. It is the largest investment trust in the global equity income sector, with a market capitalization of about 1.8, 1.9 billion. Bruce, so your results were out yesterday, but uh, we're going to talk about the way the world is moving and uh, how you've been adjusting your portfolio in the past rather turbulent period. We've had the pandemic and the Ukraine war and higher inflation and all those things we've heard about and been wrestling with for the last few years. So I'm going to kick off and say I'm going to make the presumption that uh, what you feel about last year is that it was a reckoning for investors that has been some time in the making. You've been critical of central bank policy, easy money policy, and so on for a number of years before 
we got into the uh, current bear market. Would I be right about that? Would that be a fair summary? I think it's a fair summary. In many ways, what transpired last year was really evidence that it's not different this time again. It's actually very much the same. It's just been such a long period of time since we've had inflation. Therefore, a whole generation, it's not the norm. It's not what they've seen in their lifetime in the business. In the last two years, I mean, inflation last year, as you know, in the UK was 13.4. It was 7.5 the year before. And there's been a tendency to sort of dismiss it as just supply shocks caused by COVID, obviously the conflict in Europe and energy prices and food prices. But it goes beyond just commodity prices. I mean, it's in asset prices and it has been in asset prices for the last 20 years as interest rates have gone down and down. And people have felt there's no alternative but to buy property and, and to buy equities and, and push up asset prices. But it's also in rents. It's also now in wages. And of course, it's now starting to filter into index-linked government spending in, in various areas. So it goes much deeper than just the commodity side. And, and therefore, it demands a very different investment perspective, as you well know. Last year was very much the multiple compression part of higher interest rates, which has happened before and will happen again. This year, we suspect that will now flow through into the earnings impact of higher interest rates and inflation, because inflation has increased input costs and therefore will squeeze margins and we expect a lot of, of earnings downdraft from here. So there are lots of things to negotiate and it demands a different attitude towards what types of businesses you own, both in terms of quality, cash flow, but also in terms of, of real assets. And what is a real asset nowadays? There's a good question for you, given the issues in the office property market, etc. Indeed. Well, real assets obviously have to uh, make a return that exceeds uh, the rate of inflation. In the short term, I mean, hardly anything is able to do that because inflation has gone up to double digits. Uh, but it does appear to have peaked now, and uh, many in the market are expecting inflation to fall quite sharply, and therefore for central banks to be able to reverse these belated <coughs> interest rate rise increases that they have uh, put in place last year, very rapid ones, unfortunately. But I think what you're saying is that that may be rather idealistic to hope that we're going to go back to uh, 2% inflation straight away uh, and that interest rates will come back down to former levels. They're not going to go negative again, for example. I'm sure you would you would say that. Well, to get them to go negative again, you'd have to get into some sort of deflation. But we have quite an extraordinary situation at the moment that is predicated on the recent past. And of course, inflation as a headline will fall this year because of the arithmetical effect of the high increases last year. But remember, if inflation is 4 or 5% this year, prices are still going up. They're not going down. But just to take up on a point that you mentioned there, Jonathan, which I think is really interesting, because the world seems to be obsessed at the moment about predicting the peak inflation and interest rates. And this obsession that we're going to return to 2% mean. Now, that may have been the case of the inflation experience in the last decade. And of course, many, if not all, discredited central banks are peddling this message of getting back to 2% as well. But we suspect that we're not going back to 2%. We may be going back to a 4 or 5% world that we've all experienced through our lifetime. It might not have been 
in the last decade or so. But a 4% world is very different because it's predicated on the basis that if we're going to have quantitative tightening and we're going to shrink government balance sheets because government balance sheets are just too big and unsustainable, especially the last leg up to fund the, the COVID crisis, then that has a long-term implication for bond yields that will be higher, regardless of what they do with short rates, because we have to compete, if you like, for funds to fund government deficits. And therefore, you know, in that kind of inflation world, it would be four or five percent not going back to two. And of course, that has implications for equity multiples, it has implications for overall growth, lower bond yields, but probably higher. And certainly you have to look at a different type of business in that environment. It's an environment that we're familiar with because we saw it in the 70s, we saw it in the 80s, we saw it in the 90s to a certain extent. But it's alien to many uh, over the last 10 or 15 years. I suspect it may well become more and more relevant going forward from here. So if we look at government bonds then, uh, okay, so we look at, say, the 10-year bond yield at the moment, if that's the one you would look at, or 30-year yield if you prefer, we're in the sort of range of, you know, 4 4.5%, that sort of thing. But is the implication of what you're saying that actually even at those levels, government bonds are a dangerous alternative? They are an alternative for the first time to other things which are other asset classes, but are they actually going to become good investments or are they, as in the 60s, 70s and so on, are they going to lose money in real terms, even at those yields? I think what we have to draw a distinction here is between what is happening in the developed world and what is happening elsewhere in the world. Because in the developed world, this is where we've seen the enormous rise in government debt. I think in the UK, our interest payments on our government debt are £100 billion a year now. And that's because of QE over a long period of time, where each and every financial crisis was bailed out by governments printing money. And so the long-term implications of that is that that debt has to be financed and it has to be competitive, if you like, in the market. So if it's four or five, because inflation is four or five, then it'll be tough to make a real return on bonds, but they will be in competition with other risk assets. But if we go to Asia or if we go to the emerging world, one, they don't have the same levels of government debt, but also the increased interest rates throughout 2021 well ahead of inflation for the simple reason that they've seen it before. Inflation is no stranger to Brazil or Mexico in the last 10, 15, 20 years. And having gone through the tightening cycle, there's scope in, in those areas, and particularly in Asia as well, for interest rates to come down, and that would provide a tailwind, and you might not get the same level of earnings downgrades. You might get better growth outlook and of course, we know there's better productivity in some of those areas. So altogether, that gives you a better outlook, perhaps, than where the headwinds are in the debt-laden developed world. So, I mean, you've been investing a, a greater proportion of your assets in your portfolio away from the US and to lesser extent Europe, I think, uh, for the last few years, precisely because of those underlying concerns. Where is the portfolio mix at the moment in terms of the split between say, you know, the US and the rest of the world? Well, I'll give you the split. The US is not relevant in the equation because what we're trying to do at Money International is manage the investment objective of the trust. And the objective of the trust is to have dividend growth 
an above average dividend yield, which it's had for a long time, but 4% may not be above average going forward from here, and obviously capital growth as well. So whether a stock or a company is domiciled in the US or not is irrelevant. It's only can it add something to that investment objective. It just so happens that many don't because they don't pay dividends or they don't return cash to shareholders other than buy back stock, which is no use to us. So we're more interested in just individual businesses, and we only have 50 in Money International, that can get the growth we want, but have the free cash flow that will, even if it's not coming back to us now, will come back in the future in terms of dividend growth. And we've seen that many times. So when we look at an asset allocation, if you like, it's not an asset allocation. It's the product of where we like the businesses, and we add them up, and we happen to have 14% 14% in Latin America today. Well, it's actually only six companies, and it's six companies that we really like from Grupo Asua, the Mexican airport operator, to Sofimich, the Chilean lithium producer, et cetera. So that's how we end up the way we are. But what you can see since the sort of early 2000s is that our weighting in the UK has gone down and down and down purely because the growth opportunities are better elsewhere. And that includes dividend growth opportunities being better elsewhere. And the diversification, the diversification has been maintained throughout all this period. And markets might have got narrower and narrower, but that wasn't relevant to Murray International because we're trying to deliver the investment objective of income for people who need it. And so what goes on in markets, the distractions of what's fashionable in markets is irrelevant to us. Of course, that's what I was driving at. I mean, it's the consequence of it's not a conscious decision to have so much in America or or so much not. What it does mean, though, is that the kind of portfolio you have, if you look at it from a structural point of view, is different from those who are closely following the global index, for example. And you would say that's a strength, of course, because you've got the quality of the businesses driving the portfolio construction rather than the other way around. Of course. Presumably, if you set up a portfolio like the global indices, then that's exactly what you'll get, the global indices. I mean, in the 20-odd years that I've been involved here, the most difficult year that we ever had to explain performance was in 2012 when the performance was pretty much like an index. Now, from a trust that has an active share of 96 or whatever, that's almost statistically impossible, but it just happened. So we're not really interested in that. It's what happened in, in that year in terms of did we cover our dividend, did we grow our dividend, which we did double digit, we put money into reserves that year, which you know put us in a strong position for any time like 2020 when we had to dip into reserves to pay and grow the dividend. And that's the uniqueness of the investment trust structure. You get something different, very different, that will deliver what you as a shareholder or you as an investor want, not what some market wants to give you, which might not be any use to you whatsoever if you've got to pay your gas bill or We'll get your carry and we teach you need income every quarter. You mentioned that the current yield on the trust is uh, around 4%, a little bit over 4%, I think. Can you increase the yield on the, on the trust by paying a higher dividend? Or is it a question of how effectively can the companies you invest in maintain their dividend rates in relation to inflation in particular, which you said is one of your objectives to deliver higher dividend return than inflation? There's a few things there, Jonathan. Obviously, if the developed world is going into recession this year, that will put a lot of pressure on earnings. 
And when the, where do you get pressure on earnings? You get pressure on dividends sometimes, especially for companies that pay fixed ratio payouts of net earnings into dividends. So we don't want to be exposed to businesses like that because then that would put our revenue earn jeopardy as well. We want areas where balance sheets are very strong. And we, as I said before, you get a tailwind so that if underlying companies are growing the dividend, then that gives us the strength and flexibility to grow our dividend as well. Now, in terms of absolute yield, my internationals had pretty much a 4 to 4.5% yield for, for a long time over the last uh, 20 years as we've grown the dividend. Now, at some points in time, that was relative to 1% in a 10-year bond, and today it's relative to 4%. But when you look at government financing, you have to make your own decision as to how much risk comes with that or not relative to an equity. Because make no mistake, what we saw in uh, the end of September, October in the UK was a situation where people started to look at the amount of debt that the UK had and the, the onerous servicing that comes with it. And more importantly, who owns it? Because more and more of that debt is owned by foreign investors. And when you look at that through the prism of rising interest rates, you become very uncomfortable as to the sustainability of those debt mountains. And that's what happened in September, October, when overseas investors got really spooked by the, the implication that we may have government finance tax cuts on an already bloated budget. And we haven't seen a 20-year gilt sell at 67 pence on the pound well, not in my lifetime, we haven't. We certainly see Argentine bonds at that level from time to time. So it just adds a completely different notion to what is risk and what isn't risk. And look at the starting point, not at what went before or, or the end point. It's always been a mystery to us as to why some of the Asian debt has had much higher yields involved when the credit quality arguably has been so much greater because the budget deficits and the budget financing has been, have been much stronger and more fiscally astute. So, well, on that point, I think it's interesting to look at your portfolio. Obviously, you as a global equity income trust, you primarily invest in equities, but you also invest in bonds. So what is the current sort of mix in those terms? That is a conscious choice you make between bonds and, and equities. Uh, how does that compare to where you've been in the last few years? In other words, are you finding... Uh, any change in relative valuations there, should we say? Okay, let's put this in a historical context because it's quite important because Murray International has only taken a meaningful position in bonds twice in the last 20 years. The first time was in 2007, where at that time you could get 55 on a 10-year gilt or 5.5% on a 10-year US Treasury. And the markets were yielding 2.6, 2.7. It's the last time the bond yield equity yield worked because as soon as QE started, you got actually governments manipulating the price of bonds, driving them down, yields down because they were the buyer. And at that point in time, we had a large position in bonds in 07. I think it was 28% of the fund. We thought we'd owned them for about four or five years, but ultimately what happened was the global financial crash and suddenly equities went to six yield and those bonds went to two and a half in the space of 18 months. So we had to reverse that. Now, the only other time is the time that we're referring to more recently when we bought emerging market debt through the period 14, 15, 16. 
And that peaked at 19%. It was very, very attractively valued, selling at big discounts to par and also the currencies had been hit by fears over rate rises in the US around about 13, 14. Now, during COVID, we got the opportunity three years ago in March, April 2020, to reduce those bonds because they didn't move and increase our equity exposure because markets sold off. And we got two more opportunities to do that, one in 2021 and another in 2022 in the February-March time period, picking up yield going into equities from those bonds that were very solid. So the exposure now is only 7% in emerging uh, debt. We wouldn't say there's great opportunity in that asset class at the moment now. They all look pretty much up with events. They're still above average yield, but they're not attractive on the capital side. So it's a much, much smaller position now. Now, you are an investor trust that obviously reports in sterling and receives your income into the portfolio in other currencies. What is the impact of the dollar? And do you think that the dollar is finally changing direction? It's heading down in value after a long period when it's been very strong. Interesting your views on that and how that actually affects your portfolio and the returns you actually report and the dividends you can pay. So the currency affects money international in two ways. Obviously, a weaker sterling is positive for capital performance overall. But we also have 25 currencies in the fund. So it's not just the dollar that we look at. There are other cross rates that are very important. And obviously, the strength or weakness of sterling against other currencies is important during the year for the translation effects of overseas dividends and when they come into the trust. Now, in general, again, if we look over 20 years, sterling has gone down over 20 years and we don't hedge any currencies in money international. It would cost far too much money and it's almost impossible to work out what they're going to do. Predicting currencies is a very, very difficult thing to do, so we don't even try. The interesting thing, if we look at the six regions in the world today, that's the UK, North America and Europe, Japan, Asia and Latin America. And I was to ask you over the last 37 years, I'm just saying that because that's the time in business, unhedged, how many times has the UK been the best performing market? How many times do you think it has? In the currency market, you mean? No, just as the equity markets. Oh, I see. How many times has it been the best performing region out of the six other places that we can allocate money in the last 37 years? Okay, I'd probably guess five. So it's only two in 1990 and 1996. People think it was last year because the UK market was up and everything else was down, but Latin America was up. 24%. 24%. So again, Latin America, much better than the UK. So even unhedged, I'm not trying to make a case here for geographical diversification. It's just that people fear that because the funds in sterling and the assets are overseas, unless we could construct a, a case where sterling is going to be the strongest currency in the world for the next four years or five years, where growth is going to be the best growth in the world and interest rates are going to be the highest, then again, it's not something that we are overly concerned about because there are structural reasons why sterling struggles. And it goes back to the point we made earlier, actually, 
the more of our overseas debt is held by foreigners, the more we have to be very conscious of sterling and what happens to it. But the actual fundamentals of the country are very weak and therefore it does continue to keep downward pressure on sterling. Now, the question you asked me was about the dollar and the answer is I don't know because <laughs> the dollar has a life of its own. It's the reserve currency of the world, whether they like it or not. It got that status after the Second World War when the US was the wealthiest country in the world and the rest of the world was in ruins and owed huge amounts of money to everybody. Until it's replaced by something else, I suspect it will continue to be the reserve currency of the world. And therefore, it kind of has a mind of its own. So we'll just have to see what happens. Let's talk about China, if we can, for a minute. Obviously, China has become a more significant player in the global equity markets, at least, and a very significant player in the currency markets and, and global economic growth engine as well. But it's been through its uh, COVID problems. What is your attitude to investing in Chinese stocks? And how do you measure the political risk in that kind of decision? And what are your thoughts about China at the moment? And how important will it be to your performance, if at all? So in terms of businesses, it's just like any other region of the world. In the initial scan, if you like, are there good businesses in there that we can't get anywhere else? Now, for many people in investment, China is technology. And that's not particularly attractive for us because most tech companies are constantly trying to reinvent themselves and very little dividends come back to shareholders. So those business models in, in China are not really of any interest to us, but they're not really of any interest to us in the United States or the UK either, unless they tick some of the other boxes of, of what we want from investment. Um, in terms of quantifying political risk, it's very, very difficult to do that because how do you quantify political risk in Brazil? Um, how do you quantify political risk in Taiwan, where we have exposure in four companies? How do you quantify it in Mexico? Or indeed, when you get something like September, October last year, how do you quantify political risk in the UK when the bond market can go to 67 pence on the pound? You have to be aware of what's going on, but at the end of the day, very, very difficult to quantify. The way that we get around all these things, I guess, is we never have a big material exposure anywhere. We try to get it diversified as much as possible. So we do have three positions in China, but they're very small. Two of them are in the property market because we believe that property can recover once we get out of the lockdown period. But your total exposure is about 3.5%. You know, we don't expect China to be the panacea for all growth problems in the world going forward from here. But it is the second largest economy. And as growth has moved over the last 40 years from its export-led growth to its investment-led growth, it now looks as if it will be consumption-led growth because there are so many higher paid jobs and lots more disposable income. That has positive implications for lots of the businesses and companies that we own, both in the region and further afield, that actually supply China in terms of its requirement for goods and services. One implication of that will be it will start to probably run a big kind deficit, having had surpluses pretty much all my lifetime through its export-led growth period, etc. And that might have implications for the Chinese currency if deficits start to get bigger and bigger, but that will be further down the road. Last year, your results were good. You had a good NAV performance last year. Do you think, given what you've said about the outlook generally, that uh, 
you can sustain that through the next two, three years. I'm not asking you to quantify it, but are you actually optimistic or, or pessimistic about the prospect for your trust in this environment in, uh, in either absolute or relative terms? Well, I wouldn't look at it in relative terms. We'll look at it in absolute terms because the absolute objective of it is to provide shareholders with a yield that is used to be above average, but going forward from here might be around about what the bond market yield is. It might be, it might not be. Um, but as we said before, there's a risk judgment to be made between a globally diversified equity trust, essentially, or fixed income borrowings of governments that are you know, stretched almost to breaking point. We'll, we'll let somebody else make that decision. When we look forward, the main drivers of the trust will be, can the companies grow their earnings? We don't expect multiple expansion anytime soon, even if interest rates are cut. If interest rates are cut in the developed world, It'll probably be a panic measure because growth is so poor. So we want to be exposed to companies and businesses where that's not the case, where we can get genuine earnings growth and we can get genuine dividend growth. What we have to do, I guess, is to make sure that people's expectations are not out of order, if you like, because we've gone through a period of really above average total returns from financial assets based on multiple expansion, based on liquidity. Based on, on all very transient factors. And we have to look at the longer term and say, you know, if you get 3% from earnings or 4% from earnings and a 4% yield, that would be a fantastic absolute return relative to history with a long term return, you know, is 5.8% or something over a very, very long period of time. So it's about managing expectations to expect less, I think than what we've had in the last 10 or 15 years. But also the leadership and, and where you're likely to find that may well be very different from the past because the past was, as I said, based on multiple expansion and trying to justify in, in many investors' minds that four or five or six years down the road, there'd be lots of profitability in businesses um, when actually what's important today is real returns now, not the promise of something five or six years down the road that may or may not materialise. I mean, that was my way of leading into the question about the use of gearing within the trust, because if returns are going to be relatively, uh, sorry, relative to history, I'm talking about relative to history, quite low, what is the place of gearing? You do have some gearing on the trust at the moment, I think. Uh, at least you did at the end of the year. So what is your thinking about gearing? Are you uh, taking a risk by using gearing in this in this environment? When we evaluate the risk of gearing, the first question is how much does it cost? If the gearing is going to cost you 5% in a potentially lower return environment, then you're going to have to work very, very hard to get a real return if you're paying 5% for your gearing. In 2021, we fixed 50 million of our gearing for 10 years at 224. And last year we, we fixed 60 million for 15 years at 283. So we're comfortable with the price we paid for it. So the next question is, where is it? A lot of trusts seem to just take out gearing, put it in the equity in our market, never manage it. If assets are really expensive, then do you really want to be geared into equities? No, but we have the flexibility to go into bonds during these periods, such as 2007, when equities were very expensive, yielding 2.7 and bonds yield 5.5. So as long as the gearing can be got at a competitive rate, it's in the interest of the shareholders to have it. 
If it can't be, it's not in the interest of the shareholders to have it because they pay for it in their charges. And if we can't get a return on it, then, you know, it's not, not worth having. So, you know, as these tranches come up or whatever, then, you know, we constantly review our gearing situation, how much we've got, how much we're paying for it. Does it make sense to have it? And at the moment, what would it be, around 9 10%, something like that? But yeah, so it's um, 11% at the moment. Okay. Let's just have a quick look then at your portfolio, if we may. Uh, I'm just looking down yeah. the list of top 20 holdings, equity holdings you had at the end of December. I can see some well-known names, of course, uh, Philip Morris, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor. I don't see many oil companies. I don't see many commodity companies. Uh, I can see Vale, and I can see Total, and I can see BHP, to be fair, down the line. Um, and Sokimich as well, presumably. SQM, which is the Chilean lithium. Yes. Okay, so... Presumably, in terms of the kind of makeup of the portfolio, uh, you've got some consumer companies and so on. But uh, are there any themes that run through the makeup of the equity portfolio? That, I guess, is what I'm really driving at at the moment. Yeah, I think if we look at some of the purchases that have happened over the last three years, and I'm taking the three-year period because on a yearly basis, it can be more distorted. On a three-year basis, we've also got the reinvestment of lots of the fixed income money that was sold because it held up so well. So we never believed that inflation was just going to be temporary or transitory because we've had this monetary binge for 20 years and always and everywhere, inflation is a monetary phenomenon. It goes into asset prices and it causes inflation and that's exactly what's happened here. So when we were recommitting that capital into equities, we were buying and investing in things, particularly in the industrial businesses such as Siemens or such as BE Semiconductor in the Netherlands, um, we own Epiroc, we own Atlas Copco. These are all businesses that are interested in automation, in digital factory, in the whole productivity issue, but very global companies. They may be domiciled in Europe, but, but they're very global. We look to real assets as well, and, and real assets for us can be everything from a pipeline in Canada to Grupo Asur, our largest holding, because it owns you know, airports in Cancun and Cozumel, how do you replicate that? You don't, actually. You can't replicate it. And it's just a very cash-generative business with a very strong asset base. It has very strong pricing flexibility. Uh, people are talking about you know, companies that have pricing power. Well, if you're sitting cooking in Cozumel Airport, coming back from your holiday and they decide to put the price of a bottle of Coca-Cola from $2 up to $2.50, you're still going to buy it because you're captive in the terminal and that's the way it goes. So, you know, it's very unique type of asset. It's very tourist-driven, not, not business travellers. But that to us is another type of, of real asset that we want to own in this type of environment because we've seen it from the food company in the last three, six months that they're having to put up prices because input costs are going in, but they're sacrificing volume for it. So they're getting price increases at the moment, but they sacrifice volume. But the cost of living crisis is getting worse, not better, because real wages are still falling and interest rates have risen so that mortgages are up, rents are going up, everything's going up, energy prices are still going up and are still quite high. So as that squeezes spending in Areas like consumer discretionary, where we have nothing, you know, you may well have yet to see the worst of it because, as I say, 
the first year is the multiple compression of what's coming, but the second year is the reality. And we go back to the period 2000, 2001, 2002. 2000 was the peak of the dot-com boom. Markets went down that much, down, I think, 4% or whatever in sterling. Uh, 2001, again, they were down, but not much. But the big down year was 2002. That's when it really all started to bite. That's when the liquidity crunch really exerted itself. So poor asset quality. The markets were down something like 25%. Three years in a row, difficult environment. And, and that's what happens when you get an asset bubble-led recession. It is not resolved in 12 months. It can be resolved if it's a stock market correction in one area, such as property or banks. You tend to go into a, a deep recession and out very quickly, but not if it's an asset-led bubble where there has been lots of misallocation of capital into all sorts of non-sustainable businesses, particularly in areas of private equity or whatever, because people are just taking more and more risk because there's not a risk-free rate of return, if you like. That often takes years to work its way through the system. So we want to have the flexibility not to have to be in some areas of the world or not to have to be in some market, and we'll go elsewhere. And that's a very comfortable position to be in, if you like, even though there's a lot of discomfort in the general economic environment. So I think you said last year, when you reduced your interims, you said that there were no easy solutions to the problems that uh, the world is facing in terms of inflation and the war in Ukraine and so on. And you also made the point that central banks have only limited options at their disposal now because of their past behaviour. And you said the world waits to see if they tighten too much and cause a recession or tighten too little and make inflation spiral out of control. Uh, that was the last summer. How would you sum up how you think now? Then? Well, I certainly wouldn't like to have the job of the central banks because the markets have got used to them managing asset prices and not managing price stability because that's what they've done for 15 years. So what the markets probably expect them to do is capitulate, cave in, do whatever it takes if we continue to see pressure on valuations. And, and the issue there, of course, is asset quality in the banking sector because we don't know where all the poor allocation of capital actually is yet. I suspect at this time, when you get inflation, you can't have QE and inflation at the same time. Now, QE caused inflation ultimately because it inflated asset prices with too easy money. But if they follow through with any type of quantitative tightening, i.e. reducing spending in order to control the amount of bonds outstanding and reduce the amount of bonds outstanding, that will keep bond yields higher for longer, regardless of what they do with short rates. So it just makes it much more difficult that there is less money to go around and there are more sources needed finance. Bonds need finance. Private equity needs finance. Everybody needs finance. But the price of money has gone higher, so it's much more difficult. So as regards that, I don't think really there's anything changed from six months ago. Rates are higher. They're in a more difficult position. They may tighten too much or whatever. But all these are questions that we don't have answers to. What we might have more transparency on, greater clarity on is if we own this business X or Y that happens to be domiciled in Chile or Singapore, can it deliver 10% earnings growth this year in the such and such backdrop? And is it going to put its dividend up because it's got a good balance sheet, lots of free cash flow, and it can do that. 
that's all we have to make. And we have to make 50 of these decisions and hopefully get the majority of them right. And then we'll be able to deliver dividend growth for our shareholders and continue to keep the balance sheet of Money International really strong because it is very strong. So that was Bruce Stout, the manager of the Murray International Investment Trust. Bruce has been managing that trust since 2004. So he is one of the uh, cohort of longer serving managers in the investment trust sector. I thought it might be worth saying a little bit about some of the recent changes in management arrangements at investment trusts that we've seen since the start of last year, effectively, because we have seen the departure of a number of well-known and well-regarded managers in that period. Well, only last week, we heard that uh, Simon Edelson, who was on the podcast at the end of last week, is retiring from uh, Artemis this autumn and will be replaced by a new recruit to Artemis. He's been the uh, manager there since 2014. And other notable departures include uh, Walter Price, who's been the lead manager of the Allianz Technology Trust uh, for the last 15 years. He's retired. And Mike Seidenberg, his uh, longtime colleague, who's been deputy Fund manager there, or one of the three managers there, I should say, has taken over. Then there is uh, Harry Nimmo, again, long-serving manager of the Aberdeen UK Smaller Companies Growth Trust. He started managing that uh, vehicle in 2003. He has uh, retired, being replaced by uh, Abby Glenny, his colleague, who's been working with him on the trust for the last few years. Uh, Then also Simon Knott, manager of Rights and Issues a trust that perhaps you don't know much about, but it's a small idiosyncratic vehicle that he's been managing for the last 39 years, believe it or not. He is one of the very longest serving farm managers in the sector, second only to Peter Spiller now, who is the manager of Capital Gearing Trust, has been there for 40 years. Simon Knott has retired and management of that particular trust is being taken over by a manager called Dan Nichols at Jupiter, who uh, has a long record uh, managing uh, smaller companies' trusts in the UK, and he is taking over there. Interesting to see whether that will lead to uh, more money coming into that trust or more demand for the shares in that trust. It has been pretty much out of the limelight uh, all the time that Simon Knott's been there, but it has got a good track record, and uh, it will be uh, an interesting challenge for uh, Dan Nichols and his colleague Matt Cable to see if they can uh, grow the size of that one. And then also we've had the news that Max Ward is also retiring and stepping down as manager of the Independent Investment Trust, where he has been the manager since the year 2000. Before that, he was uh, at Bailey Gifford and uh, the manager of Scottish Mortgage Trust for a period. But he's been running this, again, sort of boutique investment trust, especially in UK, smaller companies mostly. Again, had a very interesting, if volatile, track record. And that trust is being absorbed effectively into Monk's, the Bailey Gifford Global Equity Trust. So it's sort of gone back, if you like, uh, or at least Max Ward's portfolio has been taken back into Bailey Gifford, um, effectively. The Independent Investment Trust has an interesting history. It was a period during the 1920s when it was managed by John Maynard Keynes and others. So uh, I'm afraid we've said goodbye to that one. Then also, apart from these retirements we've heard about, there have been a number of other departures uh, for various reasons, from managers leaving the companies that are managing trusts. So Hamish Bailey has left uh, Ruffer, the Defensive uh, Investment Trust. Matthew Tillett has decided to leave Brunner, where he was the manager, to do some other interesting things. And we also had uh, a couple of cases, Digital 9 and Ecofin US Renewables, where 
one or two managers uh, have actually left the company. Not entirely explained why that has happened, but they have uh, moved on. Also announced is the Phil White, the long-serving manager of 3i Infrastructure. He is retiring and, and therefore leaving the management of that particular trust. And also changes at uh, a number of other trusts, including JP Morgan Indian, where one of the co-managers has been there since 2005, has left uh, JP Morgan. Performance there has uh, not been so good recently. And then, of course, we've had Home REITs, the troubled commercial property homeless accommodation trust, where two of the original managers, who were the managers when the trust came to market at its IPO only two or three years ago, they have uh, left one for personal, one for health reasons. And uh, we don't know quite what the circumstances were there. That all happened before the news came out about the issues that uh, Home Reads are having with its uh, rent collection in the face of a short seller's attack, the shares being suspended. So those are just some of the more prominent uh, manager changes we've seen. And of course, it does raise the issue of what shareholders should do when they see that a manager who manages a trust they've been invested in perhaps for a number of years and who they've come to regard highly, had a good performance track record, what should they do? And I think the answer to that is, well, basically, you have to take a cue from what the market generally does in these circumstances, which is it tends to take a somewhat sceptical view about the merits of a successor, even if they've been in-house for a number of years. Fund management companies, the larger ones, are pretty good at uh, bedding in potential replacements over the passage of time ahead of the uh, principal's retirement. And that's, for example, been what happened to Allianz Technology, as I've said, where Mike Seidenberg's been there for uh, uh, well over a decade and, and well fully integrated into the process that uh, Walter Price and uh, his other colleagues have pursued at the helm of that particular trust. Sometimes there, there is a presumption that uh, everything will just transition smoothly. But in practice, my experience is that uh, the markets take a little bit of time to be persuaded by a change in manager, even where that is well planned and known in advance. And so that may have some certainly uh, temporary effect on the rating of the trust and its ability to raise new money, perhaps if it's uh, been trading at a premium, because it does take time for new managers to establish themselves uh, establish their credentials, if you like, as worthy successors to those that have gone before. And in the case of investment trusts where the managers have left, not always for reasons that have been fully explained, then clearly there tends to be an impetus for the market to say, well, we need to be convinced again that the new manager, whoever that may be, wherever they come from, is going to do a good job and can either sustain a track record of a good investment trust or improve one that has uh, fallen on tougher times. So I'm afraid that's maybe harsh on the individual's concern, but that seems to be the way that the market works. And then there are other cases where uh, simply fund managers find that the trust has been taken away from them, either because the board has decided to move the mandate to another firm, or because shareholders have decided that they do not wish the trust to continue uh, in its current form. And we've seen an example this week with the Aquila Energy Efficiency Investment Trust, where a majority of shareholders have decided they were given a continuation vote and they've decided that they don't want that trust to continue. So that unfortunately means in due course from the departure from the sector of the managers there in that particular case and one or two others. And there are other continuation votes coming up and there will be one or two this year, I think, which the outcome may well be that shareholders decide not to continue. I uh, may have a look at some of those in a little while, but that often is what happens after a bear market 
uh, or periods when we've seen uh, discounts widening sharply, as we saw last year, uh, it does kind of bring into focus the question of whether the current management and the current mandate is doing the job that shelters were originally promised that it would do. So a lot of change around the sector, maybe more to come this year, something we'll be tracking over the, the coming months. Uh, and what's going to be a very interesting year, a lot may depend, of course, on how well investment trusts recover from the uh, tough times that uh, most of them experienced uh, in 2022. And uh, whether or not we do see this kind of revival in the markets and improvement in investment trust discounts that many of a bullish disposition are hoping to see, where others uh, like Bruce Stout and uh, you know some of the other managers we talked to in the last few weeks may have some doubts as to whether we're going back to the previous era when uh, uh, valuations became quite rich and performance was uh, very strong for a long time, particularly amongst those investment trusts with a growth style. So that's it for this week. Thank you all for listening. As always, I shall be back next week uh, with a new guest and uh, more information about what's been happening in the investment trust sector. I look forward to talking to you again then. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.